0: Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Shear Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss. And the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear.
1: Truth Serum wants to thank Heartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Heartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Heartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Heartwood House where addiction meets compassion and recovery. Welcome to Truth Serum's Ask the Expert segment. In this portion of the podcast, I interview noted experts from all walks of life, about recent developments in their field of endeavor, and about life in general. Anything from law, to astrophysics, to whether aliens continue to visit planet Earth, to the cure of male pattern baldness. Anything goes. And whether you agree or disagree with our noted luminaries, you'll be informed, possibly confused, and likely entertained. Today's expert in our Ask the Expert segment is attorney Riley D. Wilkinson. He's an attorney at Shear Law Group. He's going to be opining on all things legal, lender, landlord, and investor. Mr. Wilkinson, you've been a practicing attorney for 15 years. You practice in state and federal courts focusing on lender litigation matters. You're the father of two children. You're a lifelong San Francisco Giants fan. Any other qualifications?
2: That about covers it. That's it? I I would say so. That it. All
1: All right. As of today, April 26, 2022, are there currently any California statewide eviction or foreclosure moratoriums in place?
2: No, there are no statewide eviction or foreclosure moratoriums in place now. However, there are local ordinances that may limit evictions and anyone proceeding with an action has got to check on that before filing suit.
1: All right. Well warned. How about Loans in California that are arranged by California DRE brokers, they're generally exempt from usury restrictions and non-consumer loans, and they can, can they continue to be exempt from usury if there's a loan modification or a workout later on?
2: Maybe not. According to a recent bankruptcy ruling in the Northern District of California, in the case of Inray Moon, the court held that the broker usury exemption only applies if the broker arranges a sale or lease or exchange of a business. And that exemption does not apply to forbearance or modification on previously originated loans. This holding should be very serious concern for hard money lenders.
1: So let me get this straight. So you have, a uh, say, a, what they refer to as a hard money loan. And because it's arranged by a broker, if, assuming it's a non-consumer loan, they're, they're exempt from usury. Are you saying that thereafter, if the, uh, let's say, the broker acting as a servicer or the investor on the loan, uh, negotiates directly with the borrower to do say a loan mod or forbearance they could lose the user exemption as, as as far as the terms of the workout
2: yeah that's what the in moon case holds and so it's something that uh, hard money lenders must be concerned with and aware of before doing or entering into modifications frightening true
1: all right speaking of frightening uh, let me test your acumen and uh, intellect to its fullest my next question is who's smarter Spencer or Joshua Shear?
2: Joshua Shear. What? I, just top of my head, it's uh, interaction with both of you every day. Yes. No offense.
1: No offense taken. But is it a matter of, of age, or is it just uh, am I declining, or is it, is it just the, <laughs> was I ever smarter?
2: I, you know, honestly, I don't have much uh, evidence to back up my theory here. It was just right off the top of my head.
1: Good, very good. I Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. What if you hire an unlicensed contractor in California to construct improvements? And say so you have a dispute with a contractor, and you don't want to pay the contractor. Can can the contractor sue you?
2: Not anymore. Effective January first, twenty twenty one, the California Business and Professions Code seventy thirty one prohibits an unlicensed cr- contractor from suing.
1: It's kind of just kind of gives just dessert back to someone who doesn't comply with the licensing requirements, right? I suppose. Good. Good. All right, moving on here. I mean, these are these are pressing questions. Washington State passed a law in April. Of 2019, it was, it was referred to as SB 5001, allowing people to decide whether their bodies could be used as natural organic reduction, in other words, compost, when they die. So, in your expert opinion, would food grown in Washington State, grown from soil that's enhanced by the compost of, say, a deceased New York Yankees fan that was eaten by a Boston Red Sox fan, cause the Red Sox fan to root for the Yankees?
2: Well, that's a tough question. And I first tell you to probably consult your health care provider. Yes. But uh, my expert opinion is that I have no clue. No clue at no all? No clue. No clue whatsoever. Is it possible? I suppose anything's possible, but I wouldn't count on it.
1: All right. Well, let's let's drill down here. I mean, this is, this is a very, uh, very serious subject here. How about political allegiances? Would your answer be any different if, say, a progressive Democrat in Washington ate food enhanced by... Uh, a conservative Republican? Could it change political allegiances?
2: I suppose that anything is possible. That's it? But but probably not.
1: I mean, it's a much more benign way. You're not using eugenics or any forcible thing. It's just simply just consuming food, right?
2: It it is. I would probably uh, probably be suspect of anyone composting their own bodies. But, uh, hey, teach their own.
1: Yeah, that's the bane of this generation, to each his own. That's true. <laughs> all right, last chance here. I mean, I'm trying to to, to get at your, your sizable intellect here to, to resolve what could possibly be a very uh, problematic issue for many people in Washington. How about uh, Einstein's compost? Would it make you smarter?
2: I suppose it couldn't hurt. Ah. Okay, so uh, why not give it a shot?
1: All right. All right, true or false, in California, a homeowner who's over 55, disabled or the victim of a wildfire or natural disaster can transfer the base year value of their residence to a new home that's acquired or or newly constructed if they do it within two years of the sale of the original primary residence. Is that true?
2: Yes, it is true. Uh, The recent passage of SB 539 amends California's uh, revenue and tax code and allows this. Not only that, but if you're over 55 or disabled, you can transfer the base year value three times.
1: That's great. Especially in this day and age of uh, escalating uh, real property values. I mean, it can be significant, especially if somebody buys a house under Prop 13, you know, say 20 years ago that maybe three, $400,000 worth a million five. Now the tax differential is huge. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. something to be nice. So what is that? Uh, what's that, that uh, code section or bill again?
2: It's Senate Bill 539. Okay, great.
1: All right, finally, if you had your tonsils removed when you were a child, can they grow back?
2: They can. Tonsils no. can grow back if the tissue is left behind in the removal process.
1: Have you had your tonsils on?
2: I have. Did they ever grow back? They haven't, but it was fairly recently, so it's crossing my fingers they don't come back. But
1: you know this for sure as an expert.
2: I'm pretty sure about this one. <laughs>
1: All right, Mr. Wilkerson, thank you for this expert information, and I hope you return again in the future on Ask the Expert.
2: I'll be here. Thank you.
1: Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak is a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit and sometimes you need a lender who understands and who can get you a loan when you need it most. Iron Oak can help. Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com. Or call Rich at 925-803-2465. Or call Christy Mathers at 925-281-2809.
0: Laws and real estate. Now, join me as I
1: interview noted expert and futurist, Mark Mills. Mark's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's recently published a book called Cloud Revolution, in which he contends we're entering a time of new technological revolution, primarily due to the convergence of three key technologies. He believes this will lead to the roaring 2020s and forever change the way we work and we interact. All right, Mark Mills, let me give my listeners a little bit of background on who you are, and then I'll ask you about your most recent book, which is called The Cloud Revolution. You're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern's University McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, where you, co- you conducted an institute on manufacturing science and innovation. You're also a strategic partner with Montrose Lane and Energy Tech Venture Fund. You've authored many books and published many articles in places like the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, CNN, you've testified before Congress and briefed numerous state public service commissions and legislatures, and you've served in the White House as a science officer under President Ronald Reagan, and you hold a degree in physics from the University of Ontario in Canada. Mark, welcome
3: to Truth Serum. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. And I often don't confess that I worked for Reagan, not not for political reasons, but because it kind of dates me. And I want to stipulate that I was a child in the Reagan administration, a mere child. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting your feet wet and now you know much better. Exactly. Oh, it's just a baby, practically out of grade school. So I don't want you to think I'm an old guy. No, that's interesting. How did you get that position? Was it just fortuitous or did it just uh, how did it work? Fortuitous. I mean, I don't, I, it, the, uh, that uh, White House was very much involved in uh, nuclear energy issues. Uh, the, what, the accident at Three Mile Island, happened the year before he was elected. I had spent the week of the accident at Three Mile Island. I was the science advisor for the Commercial Nuclear Industries Trade Association at the time as a young man. And I was uh, also involved in defense systems earlier in my career prior to that. So the Strategic Defense Initiative was a focus of the science office. I was very much involved in that. Non-proliferation of nuclear weapons was a big issue, still should be, in my opinion. I was involved in that as a young physicist. And, of course, the commercial nuclear energy, all of which were uh, big, big topics. They're still big topics. And uh, the, I guess the fact that I had, I had done those things. And, of course, they look for young, eager, uh, naive talent to work uh, 20 hours a day, seven days a week when you're a junior staffer in the White House science office. That sounds just like what we do here at Sheer Law Group. <laughs> Nothing's changed. I'm still doing the same thing. It's really, I haven't learned my lesson.
1: <laughs> Good. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your book, The Crowd Revolution. In your book, you advance the prospect that we're entering into what you refer to as the roaring 2020s. And, and in my uh, terminology, in essence, you assert that convergent revolutions in three core technologies, information, materials, and machines will use the cloud to accelerate one of the greatest economic booms in our history. Can you elaborate on that?
3: Yeah, I think, I think it's important as a predicate to point out that um, being an optimist uh, is uh, out of fashion these days, especially given what's going on on the world stage. But I generally remind people to, uh, you know, it's not hard to do history anymore with a Google machine to read what was going on politically, geopolitically socially and culturally at different times in history 50 years ago 100 years ago in 1920s uh, a lot of chaos wars have always been part of human nature sadly Uh, inflation disruptions riots racial distresses i mean this is i say all that because it's easy to forget how uh, extreme those issues were in previous times we sort of suffer from presentism. So I'm not naive about the fact that human beings have the capacity to destroy the future, to have wars. But what my book is about is sort of the underlying question of, is there anything really different going on in technology in the world, other than episodic excitement that's overhyped about a specific invention or a specific product, but rather, do we have anything in the future as magnificent as the great economic expansion that took place roughly starting around 1920 early early ni- early 20th century and then for the next 80 years we had the biggest expansion of wealth and well-being uh in all of history largely isolated to the to north america and the european nations but especially in north america the united states is it possible that was a one-time deal because some people say that some economic historians claim it was a one-time deal you can only invent the airplane once you can only invent the car once. You can only invent radio once. And you go down the list, and those things were all invented. And pharmaceuticals were invented in the early, early 20th century, the chemical era. What I contend, and, and I map out in my book, uh, based on facts of what's going on today, is that the architecture of technology today and its changes look a lot like 1920. And the revolutions that go on are not one invention. The great expansion of the 20th century was not because of the car alone or the airplane alone or radio and TV alone, right? Or pharmaceuticals and polymers alone or aircraft alone. It was a combination of those things happening contemporaneously, which was not intentional. It was a happy accident, really. And that was incendiary in economic terms and social terms. I contend that the same three spheres in which these technologies reside and all technologies fall into three buckets. It's either about information, finding it, storing it, sharing it, or it's about machines to make and move things uh, and provide services. Or it's about materials with which everything is made. Energy systems are based on that. Uh, services are based on everything. is Everything emerges from those three spheres. And you can get revolutions in one of them, I mean, but not the others. Uh, and, and it's a big deal i mean you it, it matters right the if something gets invented like a telegraph changed things the book the printing press what occurred essentially in isolation if you like at that time in history was a big deal but we have we have revolutions in all three spheres again and in the same characters in the 1920s and i think it's predictive now whether that economic efflorescence happens in a year or two, or takes a few years. A lot of exogenous factors, political, cultural, social, regulatory, obviously, Uh, things like that are going on in Ukraine right now, uh, unfortunately, in a conflict with Russia. Uh, These things are are meaningful and they're serious, but they don't change the underlying phenomenologies and technology. Technology sort of, engineers, scientists sort of march to their own drummer. I mean, I've worked as both. I was trained as a businessist. I worked as an engineer and I worked as a scientist both. And I've worked in finance and I've worked in policy. All of them matter. But the engineers and innovators, the scientists, you know, they 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 didn't invent the car because a war happened or didn't happen. The microprocessor didn't come along because wars were going on or weren't going on, right? I mean, the fiber optics were invented not because of of social conflicts. They just they happen not entirely outside of the other spheres, but they really do happen independently. So you have to. So it's not unreasonable to look at them by themselves. And, but, it, but then you really have to think about how they'll impact as they mature, and the technology' become useful, how do they then impact uh, operations, businesses, governance and trade? And which I, which I attempt to do in my book. I, try, I don't try to map everything out. What I tried to do is paint the picture of what's changed, and in effect the revolution that's already happened, evidenced before us and things that are already maturing not just invented, but are now possible to change the near future, not the far future, not science fiction. And then how will that affect healthcare, workplace environments? How does it affect entertainment? How does it affect supply chains and manufacturing? So, and, and general structure of our workforce. I looked at all those things and education, by the way, if I didn't say that one, because, you know, we're, we live in a time where people are either kind of goofily, over, overly enthusiastic about a single thing, augmented reality, so the metaverse, right, and virtual reality, right. or overly pessimistic about the nature of how we operate our economy. And we do a lot of dumb things. Let's just stipulate again. But that doesn't change the fact that what's going on in the underlying interstices of technology and science so that's my book's focus and when you look at what's going on it's hard not to be optimistic now again i'm optimistic the potential is there i believe it will be unleashed because i think the American system hasn't fundamentally changed in and in any way that will impede the revolution but it could be slowed down by recessions and bad governance i mean malfeasance of bad governance and corruption and wars can retard advances, and they have it throughout all of history. But we're on the precipice of one of the greatest expansions in technolo- technological efflorescence since the, 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 the first industrial revolution, if you like, since the advent of industrialization itself.
1: All right, let, let's chill down a little bit. Of that. I appreciate that. Because you, you used the uh, 1920s uh, as the last example, I think, because you said, again, uh, the confluence of telephone plants and pharmaceuticals uh, or accelerators just launched technological advance. So be, since the 20s, uh, has there been anything else like that, or is it just from the 20s until now?
3: Well, we haven't had a confluence like that since the 20s because the pessimists, who I call the new normalists, <laughs> because we're told all the time, we live at a time of new normal. You can't expect high growth rates, like 4 or 5% to sustain themselves. Sure, out of a, you know, a lockdown and a recession, you get high growth rates. Then they go back to the new normal. We're told of 1.8 percent GDP growth rate for the next ten or twenty years. That's, and that's because uh, the car got invented once, right? We invented having cars instead of horses and buggies and trains was a big deal, economic, economically, uh, economically a big deal. And, and you can go through the list of these inventions, all of, almost all of which trace their history back to right around. And history in terms of becoming mature and mature commercially viable, to right around 1920. The only thing that we've invented a significant commercially since then, of course, is the uh, what we would call, at, at, I call the cloud, but it's the internet. The internet itself and computing in its form didn't exist in 1920. People knew a, a computer was a, was a word for a person who did computing right? That's where the word came from. You, they, you had rooms full of computers, people uh, with pencils and um, paper, and they did accounting. Uh, and, and in science labs, they did computing as well. So we've invented the computer. It's a big deal. Everybody knows the, the invention of a modern computer. You know, you really mark 1952 is the first commercial computer. It was a UNIVAC, and it was bought by the federal government to do census counting, but that was the first commercial computer 1950 so it was a long time after the 1920s and computers took decades to mature it wasn't until deep into the 70s uh, famously that we had personal computers and there weren't that many of them until well into the early 90s right it was not an, an efflorescence it's a it's a long overnight revolution but that's the other thing that happened that's different and it's 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 not a trivial difference but it's not enough alone. If you Computers change how we can do information that didn't change how we could drive cars from 1950 to, even to today very until very recently. So the dozens of microprocessors, computers embedded in cars today, make the car more efficient and safer. But that's only a very recent phenomenon. It's only the last decade that most cars are infused with computers. Uh, so you had 50 years of computing in which its impact was isolated to information domains, important, finance, right, and email instead of physical mail. But that, collectively, the information part of the economy, literally, I mean, information, entertainment, and accounting, that's about 10 or 12 percent of the GDP. It's an important 10 or 12 percent. But the other 80, 90 percent of the economy was, you know, the back office had computers, but you didn't change how the factory ran, particularly, because of computers in the 1960s and 70s, you changed how the accounting department operated. Meaningful, of course, but it's not revolutionary in the way the car was revolutionary. I'm contending that the computer revolution is just beginning because as it is you is it is a, as it's democratized in a form that's becoming truly useful in the cloud, which is as a utility function, connected to anybody, any machine, anywhere, anytime. And doing not computing, but doing advice and inference. This is really different. And that difference, when applied to the other domains of materials and machines, is, is genuinely incendiary. It's a, it's, a, it's a difference with a distinction as opposed to a distinction without a difference. All right, good. Let's, let's drill
1: down into a little bit uh, some of these items. Let's discuss robotics just for a minute. My, uh, my
3: favorite, I love robots. What? Who doesn't love robots? Come on, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I, I want you to tell me about it. Describe to my listeners what a cloud kitchen or a dark kitchen is, just for a little bit to whet their appetite.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, cloud kitchens, dark kitchens are, the, are synonyms for the idea. Uh, and we all, everybody's using dark kitchens today, and they just don't know it if, if they're not aware of it. When you, use, when you use a DoorDash or Uber Eats or any of these services that deliver food to your house, cooked food. We're not talking about delivering groceries from the grocery store. That's yeah, that's pretty pretty easy. That's been going on for a very long time. It's been going on since Roman times. It's not, it's now facilitated, of course, by the you know the ease of an app on a smartphone. But the push to um, delivering cooked food and using the restaurant's kitchen, but more importantly, the dark kitchen is restaurants migrating from providing food to patrons that show up. So, only cooking food that gets delivered to homes, which incidentally is not a new phenomenon. Again, it was very common in the Middle Ages throughout most of history for the middle classes, even though there were fewer middle classes. Proportionally, the middle class was very common to have food cooked elsewhere in other kitchens. But the, the industrialization of kitchens at essentially warehouse scale, dark kitchens, cloud kitchens, intended to deliver fresh food in hours. Not days, right? And some in some cases, in many urban areas, within the hour. And the race is to be faster, and and not just with people driving, but in some parts of the world already with drones, right? Delivering hot pizzas in Australia over distances that would be impossible to deliver hot in 30 minutes, but for the drone. The emergence of the dark kitchen was made possible by exactly the trifecta my book's about. It required the ubiquitous Uh, seamless information infrastructure that made it it very easy for the counterparties to communicate what I want and what they can provide. It required the machinery of delivery, literally cars and drones, to be inexpensive, efficient, and cheap enough to make that viable. By definition, I can't have that part of the ecosystem dominate the cost. And of course, all those things are made possible by changes in the material sciences that make drones possible Frankly, and that make the kind of robotic efficiencies possible in kitchens. And those kitchens increasingly, not they have people in them, of course, but they increasingly have robots in them. You want to you want to automate as much of the cooking process as you can, not to displace people per se. It's because as we already know, and we're experiencing right now in the a- age of the great resignation, there aren't enough people to hire for these jobs. So if you're a, a provider of these kinds of services you would like to buy you know buy rent or borrow a robot to help amplify the people you can hire not to replace the people that you have which is what's exactly yeah, what's a little, be, but, exactly.
1: yeah one thing i want to interject now because some uh, i want to get into some of the uh maybe the alarmists' their views on robotics but i, I appreciated what you said on uh, the uh for the great resignation meaning that for all the people who are concerned that uh, robotics may take away jobs. Like I I read one stat that said uh, within five years, 6% of all American jobs will be replaced by a robot. And Oxford University said 35% of all jobs will be replaced by AI in the next 20 years. But your contention, one of them on your book, was that uh, this is really a... uh, it's, it's a deflationary mechanism because, because you can't find people to take these jobs and normally you're going to have to pay them increased wages, which is inflationary, but instead, if you have robotics taking these and making more efficient use of, uh, of time, then it's actually deflationary and better for the economy. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, first let's, let's take the two buckets in the in the trope. One, one is that that the automation, robots in particular, are going to be the first time in all of history that automation has led to a net decline in employment not not displacing work 60% of the kinds of jobs that existed in the 1960s don't exist as jobs today we could name two of them like a telephone operator and most 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 bank tellers but there's lots of jobs 60% don't exist and yet we have we have don't have unemployment we don't have 60% of the people unemployed we don't have enough people to do the job so clearly they're doing other things but Automation does eliminate specific jobs. It just changes the nature of work. But because automation is only used when it's productive, no business uses a machine to replace a person if it doesn't result in lower costs, lower inputs, less material, less labor, less dollars to provide more outputs, which lowers costs, which is a wealth creator. Wealth creation creates more more demand for other services, particularly things like entertainment and travel. Uh, luxury goods, all the things that wealthy societies want, which also creates employment. I mean, simplistically, the employment in the entertainment industry, globally, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. It wasn't 50 years ago, (laughs) and everybody working in that business, and many of them are paid very well, are, are made their jobs are made possible by the wealth creation of taking away the need to have all labor attached with essential services, so to speak. So now, if you're an employer, simplistically, if I, could, if I could rent a robot that could make an employee 50% more productive, which is what you do with all automation, there's still employees, I can afford to pay that employee 30% more just to pick a number. And I'm still saving money, making a profit and sending the product or service out at lower costs. It's a classic win, win, win. You know, Joel moiker. The economist, economic historian at Northwestern, who is, in my opinion, a Nobel-class economist, wrote a book years ago called "The Lever of Riches" and said that technology is the only free lunch that exists in economics. It's a great line because you, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, actually, it turns out there is one. If you, as you improve the productivity of society, it's a it's a win all around. And again, when you say that, people think, "Well, yeah, but." some people will lose their job. That's true. Of course it's true. Some people do lose their jobs. And, if, and let's say there are people that can't be easily retrained or moved to go somewhere else. Well, the benefit of a wealthy society is that we can afford something that hasn't existed up until recent history. Uh, our safety nets, things like retraining programs and unemployment insurance for transitions, these kinds of things never existed before in history. The only reason we can afford them to state it again, is because of technology driving productivity, which creates the wealth that allows that to happen.
1: Good point. Let me, let me do a jump off here because I'm conscious of your time and I only have a little bit of it. So let, let's let's just let's drive this over to the metaverse because that's another great example of where, yes. you know, people think that, you know, this is going to be the, the next frontier. It is the next frontier. You know, clearly you can use it for issues like a doctor can simulate surgery. A teacher can virtually interact with people all over the world uh but i uh, is is there a danger also in the metaverse that in essence uh because you're very optimistic about the metaverse is there a danger that uh the metaverse becomes in essence like the uh, the matrix where uh you know people just plug in and tune out and nothing productive is happening except for the wealthy few i mean talk about that a little bit if you would
3: yeah you know first i'm bullish about the metaverse but not not for gaming and toys and but, and in fact, I think Microsoft's acquisition of Activision is not a signal that they want to be a bigger gaming company. They make a lot of money in gaming, but it's a minor share of their revenues, as you know, probably all your listeners know. Uh, what were they buying? I think they were buying platforms and talent to work in three dimensions and augmented and virtual reality. It's extremely difficult to work in three dimensions and not two. The planar dimensions of the screens that you and I do zooming on are comparatively trivial to write code for compared to going into three dimensions to make it realistic takes astonishing compute power and astonishingly different, more complex software. So you buy that talent precisely for what you described to do simulations of surgery, to do simulations of construction work, to improve the safety and operational planning for all manner of things in a supply chain. Every kind of business will ultimately be impacted by moving the compute world easily as easy as doing a game, Literally, into augmented or virtual reality. This is this is very consequential. I hate to agree with Mark Zuckerberg, but he's right. It's consequential. Uh, it's really hard to agree with him, frankly. But you know, he's <laughs> he's he's obviously smart. He's right about this. But your question is the dystopian question. Well, people will just spend all their time in ever more fun games. Okay, uh, there's certainly some evidence that uh, a lot of human beings waste their time doing things that we would call unproductive. Uh, not social or sociable or even predatory and, and, and gross. Right, okay, well, how is that different than any time in human history? I mean, I'm not endorsing it. I'm not making an observation about the obvious. This is not new uh, that humans, not every human being uses a new tool for good. I mean, we use our new tools for warfighting. I mean, cyber warfare is now part of the, uh, uh, part of cyberspace. Uh, so that that's wired into human nature. It's not something I like, uh, but it doesn't obviate the fact of the benefits the technology is bringing. And there's a certain amount of, I don't know what to call it. Maybe know, arrogance is a wrong word, but, uh, you know, being judgy to use a trivial term, what, what one, one man or woman's form of entertainment, the other person thinks is de classe and they shouldn't waste their time on it because I do more sophisticated things when I have my leisure time. Okay. well, please come on. It, it mean, it's very, that's not everybody likes the same stuff for entertainment, and I'm not talking about, you know, pornography on the internet. I'm talking about just the range of things that people enjoy doing in their leisure time. It's very different. We're all humans and have very different tastes. So a lot of the uh, chattering class <laughs> looks down on what they think are the bitter clinger class, so to speak, or the, you know, the working class. What they do for entertainment: NASCAR versus opera, an old kind of debate, right? I like both. Personally, I just have to tell you, I used to race motorcycles. I was a mechanic. I love engines and cars. And I happen to like opera. and dance. So you can like both and you don't have to like either. But the metaverse and, the, and, uh, and augmented virtual reality really do change the nature of entertainment, just like TV changed entertainment, radio changed entertainment, movies changed entertainment. It'll change. It's changing. It'll change as much in the next decade as it did in the decade when television came on, on on the scene, so TV really sort of changed TV and movies together, really changed how we did entertainment in the early part, mid part of the 20s. Yeah, I, you know, I, th- I I don't disagree with you, and I,
1: I get that I, that you know people can have their own you know provincial attitudes that can just be stifling, but I, I do see a, a real danger in what's going on now that I think has to be addressed, and that is the privacy issues. Uh, are, are legion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I want to I segue into crypto and, uh, and blockchain and distributive ledger, but it seems to me that the, the, one of the big dangers, again, the matrix is, is the entertainment film. Everybody's plugged in. You, you don't have anything to say. You're just a, a captive audience. But what about the average person that you don't really want to give away your information? You don't want to be known to the extent that you are when people drag your information out of you, whether it's virtually or, you know, because you just put in keystrokes. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you prevent that if you can?
3: Well, I think first, the fact that we're talking about it, we wouldn't have been talking about this a decade ago. People were not really aware. um, Engineers were very much aware of the absence of privacy and all the kinds of personal information people were giving away unknowingly. uh, And literally, I think it was genuinely unknowingly. I I dare say that regardless of educational class or demographic makeup or geographical location in America today or anywhere in the Western world, and including Asian countries, that people are keenly aware of exactly what you said. We we have a hypertrophied awareness now of our privacy in the digital space. And so it will get addressed in, in a couple of ways. First, people are beginning to demand that they get privacy and a choice of what I get to share. Starting it's already happening. So a lot of the platform providers are increasing their, their op, your opt-in opt-out on your personal information. And and that now that's a that's sort of the personal side. Now set Let's just stipulate, I think that's coming. It's already happening. And I think those who don't care for what they provide, okay, there's always people like that. But an awful lot of people do care, and they will be able to opt in to saying, I don't want you to know, or opt out of you knowing automatically.
1: All right, so let me have at you on that one just for a second, because I did a segment or an episode on this before. There was a guy named Zach Voorhees, who wrote a book called Google Leaks, who basically said everything Google's doing, they're creating algorithms, and, and they're delisting you yeah. or I mean things like that. I mean whether I want to sit there and try and use DuckDuckGo Duck Go or something else to try and keep Google off of my information, it's a losing battle for a guy like me. Is is that something that will ever be resolved?
3: Yes, it will. It, it, it will be resolved through the magic word blockchain and, and, and technologies like that. So one thing about blockchain is it, it obviously allowed the creation of cryptocurrencies, but that's a blockchain and crypto is made makes cryptocurrencies possible because it's a secure distributed network. It's its security and contracts information. Contracts is information that makes it powerful and allows you to create a cryptocurrency. As the internet migrates increasingly to a blockchain structure, which it will because it can, but it requires extraordinary um, low latency, high power networks, and high power computing to make blockchain function uh, in the background in ways that doesn't degrade the value of my you know my the tool itself. But we're there, and that. That will change the game. It means that Google won't be collecting stuff because they won't be able to see it. So the more that we migrate towards a sort of blockchain inherently secure structure in the internet, the better it will be for security and the more difficult it will be for the harvesting of data, which has spillover effects, obviously. The advertising models that have been based on harvesting data that's just out there are gone, right? If I want that data, I'm going to have to come to you on your because it'll be secure network and say, I'd like. I'd like you to share your data and maybe I have to buy it from you and you have to volunteer to go in. There's all kinds of new advertising models that we're going to emerge from this. But I'm very confident that security networks and security provisionings are not only emerging, but even better ones are, are coming to make it possible for the kinds of things you're talking about to be impossible.
1: So I love your optimism. Let me come back at you though on, on other things because I, I think about this all the time. I'm always asking guests. So let's look at crypto, for example. I mean, it, again, it's blockchain and distributive ledger are the tech that cryptocurrencies like. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum ride on. But I'm seeing a disturbing trend. Like if you look at what they've done in China, they kicked all the Bitcoin miners out. They've made their own uh, digital currency and they use it to spy on their their own populace. And it seems like the U.S. is now considering whether they do it themselves or they they lease it out to people like Zuckerberg or whatever. It just seems to me, how is the average person going to maintain the data integrity you just said individually if they have all the cards meaning your your bank accounts your personal information from your financial transactions
3: No, i think and i think this debate's going to be um amplified now now that we have a western country emulating china with my you know i'm a canadian and an american and uh my former homeland has engaged in uh chinese communist party tactics against peaceful protesters what a great story that is let's let's get into that in just a minute but yes go continue horrendous so if you know, and I know that when people want to donate in the future through a GoFundMe kind of platform, uh, they're going to want to be anonymized, right? And not 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 let the government shut you down. So two two things are going to happen. First, the technology is making possible what I described. It just hasn't been easy to do up until now. But again, we're not China. Um, Canada looks like it's sadly closer to China than the United States. There's no there's no um, Firewall around the United States, like China has around on it. There's no single entity in the United States like China has that can control the a sprawling, disjointed network that we have in the United States. It just doesn't exist. Doesn't mean they can't spy on you, as we know famously from NSA leaks. But they aren't controlling it, and we don't have a, a legal or a corporate structure like that. The fear you you're describing, and it's fear again, people everywhere now aware of is we don't want to migrate to that so it's not not only did the chinese do us a courtesy i would say and this is my only backhanded compliment the prime minister justin trudeau because i have nothing to compliment about at all on any subject frankly especially these days he's done us the favor of showing the direction we can't let this go in our banking systems and our trends, especially as we go increasingly into well
1: said absolutely true
3: It'll it'll be a political revolt in Canada too. I think it's coming, and here too over that kind of. I mean, you donate some money, fifty bucks or five bucks, to a trucker. Do you feel sorry for? And you get your bank account frozen, your bank, your entire bank account. I mean, that kind of heavy-handed reach is uh, people are going crazy and should. Now, how do we control that? You could, you need, you need. This is as I write in my book. I'm not naive about politics. You need a political revolution on both sides of the political aisle to stop that. Neither side wants that. You don't, you're you not always going to be in charge, whichever side you think you're on, and you don't want the other guy to have that kind of power re- over your protests. So I think we'll see a unified abhorrence of that coming at a time when it's technologically possible to implement tools and techniques to prevent the government from doing that you have to have a very very high bar to seize people's bank accounts and they and the bar was too low and made too easy with the technologies as you described so we fix it and we're going to fix it now you know again i'm sounding like i'm a pollyanna no no i i think it's going to be hard it's going to be a hard fight i know it's going to be a hard fight and it's not obvious how you fix it in terms of the specific regulations but technologically i know it's fixable and i'm I'm not making the prediction, but I'm guessing the nature of our debate we're having about it right now in America is going to be enormous political pressure to fix this problem. This is essentially a security and privacy problem again. Boy, if there's one thing, I came to America in in large measure because it's exactly this kind of uh, tumultuous, argumentative, political, technical environment. And uh, we, you know, we have a history. I'm American now too. We have a history of fixing these things, but if you read history again, they don't get fixed in, in a month. <laughs> they don't get fixed overnight. It doesn't mean the problems go away the flip of a switch. It'll take a few years to fix.
1: Yeah, just a, a brief digression. Uh, George Friedman wrote a book called "The The Calm Be- the, the Storm Before the Calm," somewhat similar to what you did. He's using social, economic, and uh, uh, political uh, confluence, and, and he basically says there are just seminal times that happen and the nation will change things. And I, I hope that what you're saying is true, but I, I can see this is the battle of the century right now. Let me ask you another question. I agree. Um, Some people believe the new transformative technologies you're describing... Uh, will allow people to band together of like mind and eventually it'll just eclipse the two party system that you have now in this country. There'll be just multi-party systems where people will come together in their own uh ways and and it'll eclipse what has traditionally been a two party
3: system. Do you see that as true? The tech launching that? I don't think so. Um I think that the risks in in the the siloization, right, that we have And making it easy for people of like minds to communicate, obviously creates what everybody's talking about at echo chambers, where you only talk to people who are like-minded with you and it makes it easier to find them. So you form your social groups. And heck, if you have a really weird view and theory, you're whatever, I don't care what it is, and you can find 50,000 people who agree with you. That's a lot of people. And it's a lot easier to find them in the country. And obviously 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it's been very hard to find them all. I mean, you could write letters to each other, phone each other, but it wasn't quite the same as the magic social media. So that uh, that that I I think that's creating problems that are not obvious how they get resolved. Let me let me be candid. Um, and and for, for 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 some solace on this, I went back to reading Marshall McLuhan. By the way, and Marshall McLuhan, who was a Canadian psychologist, wrote the the famous sentence, "The medium is the message," uh, in writing about how media of communication change the messaging and change how, we, in fact, he went one step further in his writings. It changed how we think, he thought, and therefore how we could do governance. So it, it's not nothing. We are changing how we're engaging in governance because of the, this new character media. About that, there's no, no dispute. But I don't think what it does is changes the two-party system because that requires... You know, we'd have to become a parliamentary system. So I grew up in a parliamentary system. The United States isn't a parliamentary system. You essentially have a couple of parties. Sometimes you have three. You know, Ross Perot famously captured 21, I think, percent of the vote. And that's what gave us Bill Clinton, right? But for the third party, then there would have never been a president Bill Clinton. So you can get that kind of fracturing and you could imagine, you know, more people running. I think it's going to be very, again, This is We're now entering, you've taken me out of physics uh, into psychology and politics, where on the former in technology, I feel very comfortable about a confident prediction about what can and can't happen. As we migrate into this space, you sort of look at historical lessons for analogs, and you can take comfort or no comfort. You can be the half-full glass and the half-empty glass guy. I think... We, I think we're I already, again, you're seeing evidence of it again in the, the argument about whether Twitter can block an account. So it creates more other accounts. So that, that has good and bad. The good is that there's more voices talking to each other. The bad is you don't have a single channel where we're all communicating. Okay, I, I, get, I get that. But, you know, through most of human history, there was no single channel to where we all communicated. There was a sort of an aberration uh, we'll call it the network era aberration from roughly oh 1920s with radio through the uh, next 60 years before the internet, 70 years, where there's really only the broadcast channels. If you didn't get your voice out on one of the four or five main channels of radio or TV, you you weren't heard. So they filtered everything. I'm not so sure that was better. I mean, it's different. And you could you could argue it was better, uh, but the then you've ceded a lot of power to a handful of channels.
1: The same thing if, as, far as, as far as musicians go. I'm, I'm in a band, same thing. Whether I have 30 people in the world to listen to my band, at least I can broadcast it worldwide. It used to be it had to
3: be signed, right? Yeah. Well, music, the music business has been, as you know, transformed profoundly by... Uh, streaming um, and when it is, li- and the technology that allows you to record—I know this because I built a recording studio for two of my my sons who are my All our children are musicians, but they they had bands and you know burned uh, CDs. But your ability to produce professional quality recordings at very low cost now is a pure technology artifact. Your ability to directly distribute to consumers who watch your music is off the charts, better than any time in human history what a absolutely gift. True. What a gift. Man, is yeah. that not good? And I think what's coming next will be in the, the video movie domains are much harder, but that's coming too. Which what again, the multiplicity of channels, the it's a democratization of something that somebody else controlled. Call me, call me naive. It's always better to democratize a technology. And but it doesn't mean that the transition from where we are, that's the system we have to whatever the new system will be, how it will operate. It won't be obvious or easy. When LP sales started collapsing, CD sales collapsed, music revenues collapsed, you, you follow the dollar figures in what artists were making collectively in, in America, uh, it just utterly collapsed. And it's now not only back to where it was in real dollar terms, it's soaring way past it. So Interesting. great. I think that happens... In most places, and I think it's going to happen in more places now because what happened to music, in a sense, was easier because it's just sound and it's just information, audio information. If you can do that kind of democratization to manufacturing, what a big deal that would be. And that's exactly what's going on in manufacturing. Good. Let's let's transition back to tech.
1: I think I, I led you too far astray here, but you've been great to talk to. I appreciate <laughs> that. Describe two of the most transformative technologies you think will be uh, in play in the next say five to ten years that will
3: impact uh, you and I. So you want you want not a, not the un, well. How, how about I do this? I descri- I'll describe a building block technology and and a a tool. So a building block would be a microprocessor, right? Or the internal combustion engine was a building block, changed a lot of things. The car was a tool, the airplane was a tool, it Used a machine that used the building block. So the, the building block revolution is a, a biocompatible electronics. It's enormous, enormously big deal to ma- be able to make electronics that are compatible with living things, humans, animals, plants, which means I can embed sensors, actuators and things, not have them rejected. Very difficult to put uh, inanimate electronics into animate things, no longer theoretical, plenty of products and devices have already received Fda approval we, this is this is as consequential in the long run as the invention of the microprocessor itself. Where does it go? You know lot, lots of places, not least what I'll call consumable computers, literally a, a computational sensor capability smaller than a pill inside a vitamin pill that does biological diagnostics in real time for you personally, daily, securely, why wouldn't that be consequential? And that's just one idea. So that's a building block that's not theoretical, invented, maturing, and will blossom in the 20s. On the machine side, my favorite example is the robot, and I, and I mean the anthropomorphic robot. I mean robots that are untethered and that can walk. Uh, If they've been in science fiction for a long time, they're always treated in a dystopian fashion, like they're going to take our jobs. They're always going to take other jobs, always the rise of machines. Who doesn't love the science fiction around this? But having robots that are effective and useful, that can operate in environments in which we humans operate, which is a key difference. Most automated machines require that they're in cages. We can't go near them. They'll kill us by accident. You know, it's, It's obvious, Right. But if we could have automated machines operating in our environment, that's what Colgate called at Northwestern, cobots, collaborative robots, that are affordable, let's say co- costing roughly what a car costs, a lot of people buy cars in America. Uh, most homes have two cars now, statistically. A lot have three. So once robots achieve that capability of utility, mobility, and cost. To say that's not consequential, you'd have to be profoundly naive not to know that in what way is it consequential? Well, so and safety things, obviously. Environments I go in that are dangerous, I'd rather have the robot walk in first or or go in later when the accident's happening, certainly in hospitals. Versus a lot of the biggest, one of the biggest forms of disability is, of course, back injury and pain from lifting patients. Um, a robot that's anthropomorphic and compliant, working with a nurse means one nurse is doing the job of two and saving their back. I mean, you can go down lots of things. We don't have to guess if such robots are possible anymore. You can go to the magic YouTube machine and see lots of prototypical ones, Boston Dynamics, famous dancing, backflipping, anthropomorphic robot. But they are, they are already selling and leasing their spot mini, a dog. What's it being used for? Well, safety and monitoring. But this we're, we're at what I would call the Doreo wagon moment for robots. The Doreo wagon was the first automobile in the United States. It was, in, it was sold. They sold a few thousand right around 1900. Uh, and took, but until we got the Model T, 18 years later, cars didn't take off. They had to be... Cheap enough, well enough made, good enough to democratize the use of the automobile. No accident, it's called automobility. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, it's not an artificial, you know, here's the thing. It's not, re- it didn't replace, it replaced horses for sure, but it didn't, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't replace labor, it amplified labor and amplified something that was precious to us, which was our time. So robots, that's a long answer to the machine that will enter more, more visible use in the coming decade will be the thing that people have loved to write about dystopian fiction for so long, which is the robot. And I think it will become an industry as big as the global automotive industry, which is to say it's an industry. that doesn't exist today for all practical purposes and on track to becoming a trillion dollar industry.
1: Great. All right. Coming in for landing here. You're very optimistic. I appreciate that. If you're a young person today preparing for a job that won't be outdated or clipped Eclipsed by
3: tech, what would you consider?
1: Yeah.
3: I'd skip coding. Where's your... Yeah, absolutely. Unless you think you're going to become a super coder. And so one of the greatest trends in coding, for example, is code-free coding. So the one thing that supercomputers can do is write code. And the key in the, in the future of the internet is to make a semantic web that I can talk to so the computer can understand me in natural language, not just Alexa and Siri, but on steroids. Not making the goofy mistakes those AI engines already make, but don't, doesn't make the mistakes. If you need code for your job, you can describe what you need for your job, and the computer should write the code. It's already possible. So that, that, the job for coders, the coders are writing themselves out of jobs. Doesn't mean there won't be coders in the future, but there won't be any more computer coders in the future as a percentage of the workforce than there are, I don't know, farmers today as a percentage of the workforce. We'll still need them. They're critical, but they're going to be a tiny share. So what what do you want to what would you want to be in? Well, f- frankly in a in a blossoming effervescent economy, the biggest growth is going to be in what wealth creates, which is entertainment and travel and all the things that people want to do for fun because they're wealthy enough. And as more people become wealthier, that's where the most most of the jobs will be. Certainly people talk a lot about a lot of jobs in healthcare, which you know, which broadly is the medical profession. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots more jobs there, but that we don't need more people working there. We need fewer people working there. It's been the least productive part of the economy for the last 30 years. That's the first place we want to automate and get, get the number of people down, provide higher quality help with, with fewer human beings. Not no human beings, talented and skilled human beings. So, you know, where do you, where do you go? Well, you know, I always tell people if they really are, if they're, if they're young and they're and they like engineering and science, if they're good at that, definitely take it. To, of course, we're always going to need scientists and engineers. America has graduated more scientists and engineers than it's been able to employ since 1950. So there, there are, there are. You, 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 you want to be good at your job, and you'll get a job. But if you're not a particularly eager to do it, you're just doing it because you think it's going to be a job. You probably won't get a job because you won't be that good at it. So don't, don't do it because somebody's telling you to do it. Do it because you love it. Engineers that are good, I know, and scientists that are good, they love, they love their work. They don't do it because they're reluctant to do the work well said tell tell my listeners about that our venture fund or um so my colleagues and i uh started a venture fund focused on uh software in the oil gas and energy fields because there's an underserved market most software experts as investors in particular understand Lots of markets where software is used, but they don't understand oil and gas, or they don't like oil and gas, frankly, or right? energy markets. are difficult, complex, but it's the biggest single market, biggest single commodity market in the world is the energy market. And it's under-digitalized and, 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 and under-impacted by software. It's not because it's a market full of stupid people. It's because the software hasn't been good enough in a very high-risk, high high-consequence um, industrial domain, but it's getting good enough now. And that's, that's why we, we chose that to, uh, to make, make our bets. So it's, a, it's fascinating to see. And I, and I can tell you that what's very clear, and you can see it in the data, is where you might have seen a few dozen startups trying to make software to be impactful, broadly speaking, in energy domains. There are now thousands. It's just, it, looks, it looks and smells just like the software revolution of the uh, 1980s for information systems. Now we're bringing the information system software into the industrial systems.
1: Let me ask you a question on again. This uh, maybe I may be out of my element on this, but I, I was looking at a company called Abix Technology, and I think they do a uh, they're they're doing basically uh, it's almost like uh, blockchain on, on their their software to be able to show where the where the uh, items are mined from, where every contract sure. that has been done, so you can trace it as far as its green uh, origin and how it's been mined and where it's going to. Is that the same type of thing? Sure.
3: Sure, absolutely. We've looked at a number of blockchain companies to, to do both, both contract validation, as well as um, transparency on meeting safety requirements or environmental requirements. So all, all that whole domain will, will transform. Now, that requires um, compliance on the part of the players that they want to participate in that, and not everybody does around the world. It's a lot easier to do it in the United States than it is in Africa, where a lot of the mines exist. Yes,
1: All right. Describe one project you're working on uh, that gives you the greatest excitement for the future, and then let's uh, tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you and buy your book.
3: (laughs) The one project I'm working on? I would say Montrose Lane again, because it's impacting the most important fundamental thing we want to make cheap in the future, which is energy. And the way you're going to make energy cheap in the future, whatever the energy form is, is through more automation and more software.
1: Is this country just shooting itself in the foot with its energy policy now? I mean, it just seems like we're so far uh, ahead of ourselves trying to, to jettison the efficient energies in, in place of
3: untested technologies. Is that yeah. accurate? We have to do the, we'd have to do a whole separate show on that, but I'll give you a short answer. Yes, we are shooting ourselves yeah. in the foot.
1: <laughs> Mark, appreciate talking to you. You're a very, very animated, optimistic person. Thanks for spending the time. Tell our listeners where they can get your book. And if they want to get in touch with you, how would they do that?
3: Well, the the, the Magic, uh, Amazon and Barnes and all the usual booksellers carry the cloud revolution. And you can get it from the publisher. My publisher is Encounter Books. And so you can get it directly from them. And uh, it's not hard to find. It's, you know, it's, uh, we don't have an audiobook yet. It's coming out this summer, but it's Kindle and hardcover. And they can find me by either going to the Manhattan Institute website or to my website, which is Tech hyphenpundit.com pundit.com. You can find me there or you just put my name in Mark P. Mills. And I, and I, I show up in a lot of stuff because I've written a lot of stuff.
1: Great. I want to thank you again. I, you were very, uh, you're animated and I appreciate that. Don't give
3: up on the music. Always fun. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, it's, I'm just speaking the truth. Uh, optimism is just realism, but you just have to accept realism might be optimistic. Not everybody does, but thank you for having me, Spencer.
1: You're welcome. Thanks again. If I can ever be of any service, let me know. And thanks for spending the time.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening to sheer law groups, podcast truth serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters for more on the law go to www.sheerlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.